Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. The question that we are asking in this message series is this. Is it trending or is it true? Now, hashtags will tell us what's trending in our culture right now. Hashtags, if you're not familiar with them, they are labels that are used on social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And they allow users to both find and interact with uh, the topics that are of interest to them. And they can be tremendously helpful, really essential, if you're trying to find something on the internet, a particular topic. But they're not necessarily as helpful if you're trying to fully understand a topic. And that's because, well, like all labels, they lack the ability to convey the complexity of what stands behind the label. I mean, we can label somebody pretty quickly and still really not know a lot about who they really are. Same thing is true with ideas or topics. We can label a topic. We can even form an opinion and tweet something very strongly and really not understand that topic that well. Now, if a hashtag was an invitation to think more deeply about a topic, well, then that would be helpful. But with the limits of the hashtag world, it really can't do that. Twitter has a 280-character limit, up recently from 140 characters. That's only about 40 words. There's only so much you can discuss and say in 40 words. So within those limits, it's really much easier to convey strong emotions than it is to present sound logic. And so in this hashtag-driven, soundbite world that we live in, we tend to have some pretty inadequate understandings about maybe some of the issues that we feel very strongly about. And this has affected our understanding of the Bible, of God's Word. The Bible is a <clears throat> 4 million plus character document, much more than 280 characters. Clearly, God's truth is more complex than the limits of our hashtag approach will allow. Now, in this message series, we are looking at some of the hashtag thoughts and emotions that people have formed about the Bible. Rather than reading the Bible carefully over time and really trying to understand it, people have grabbed little bits and pieces out of it and used those kind of ideas or phrases to convey a lot of emotion sometimes and a lot of understanding, and, and yet there's really not much understanding behind the hashtag thought itself. Today we're going to look at two words that are often said with very strong emotion but very little understanding, and they are the words, don't judge, or don't judge me. Now, these words were said by Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, and they are often used now in our culture, not just on social media platforms, but just in life. They're often said to, to, to tell people to back off and accept anything that's being said or anything that's being done. And the question I want to address this morning, is that what Jesus meant when he said this? Should we never evaluate what people do, never evaluate what they say, never evaluate what we do, what we say? Now, if Jesus had only said two words, don't judge, now it would really be impossible to tell all of what he meant by those two words. But thankfully, he wasn't limited to 280 characters. And in the, the first portion of Matthew chapter 7 that we're going to look at, he said more than 800 characters worth of information. So we're going to look at all of that, not, not just the limits of 280 characters. But let's begin where most people begin, and that is the hashtag that everybody knows. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge. Now, if that's all you know, well, you can apply that all kinds of ways. When I worked in advertising before I came here to Pastor Seabreeze, I, I had the unpleasant experience of needing to 
fire a, pl- a few employees. Not many, but, but a few. And you never know how people are going to respond when they realize that their employment is coming to an end. But I'll never forget one conversation. This individual had been working for our company for about a year, and it had really not gone well kind of from the initial hire. Uh, she was often late for work. Um, her work was late in getting done on, you know, she didn't get things done on time. She didn't work well with her team, and we just kept coming back and trying to reframe our expectations and give resources and try to make sure that we did everything we could to try to help her. But after a year, we realized that this, this isn't going to work. So I was tasked with the conversation to let her know that her employment was coming to an end. And as soon as she realized that's where things were going, she interrupted me and she said, you call yourself a Christian? She said, I thought Christians weren't supposed to judge. Well, she's right. I mean, we just read the words. Jesus said himself, do not judge. But is that what Jesus meant? Is that a fair application of what he said? Clearly, she hadn't read any more of what Jesus said on this matter, but if that's all you read, well, maybe that's what he meant. I mean, should a Christian employer never fire anyone? If so, well, you want to work for a Christian company. (laughs) You want to find yourself a Christian boss because, well, you could do whatever you wanted, and they couldn't say anything because you just pull out the card that says, hey, don't judge, Matthew 7-1. You're stuck. I'll take my next paycheck and do whatever I want. You, you, you can't, you know, we, no one really seriously thinks, well, is that a, a good application of what Jesus said? But the confusion comes in the fact that the word judge is kind of like the word pride. There's a good kind and a bad kind. There's a good kind of pride and a bad kind of pride. And there's a good kind of judge and a bad kind of judge. And you have to understand which one we're dealing with. I mean, it's very good when it comes to pride. It's good to take pride in your work. But that's a good pride, but it's not good to get full of yourself and treat other people poorly because of it. That's a bad kind of pride. In the same way, there's good judging and bad judging. And Jesus is talking in Matthew 7 about the bad kind of judging. So to understand this topic, this hashtag, we're going to begin, first of all, by clarifying the two definitions. What is good judgment and what is bad judgment? And then we're going to look at the two attitudes. There's an attitude that comes with good judgment and an attitude that comes with bad judgment. And then the two approaches. There's an approach that comes with the good kind of judging, and there's an approach that comes with the bad kind of judging. So let's begin with the two definitions. First, good judgment. What does it mean to have good judgment? 36 years ago, I saw my future wife from across the room, and I thought, now there's someone I would like to marry. But it took me a year before I asked her out on our first date, And it took another year and a half of dating before I proposed, and some months later, we were married. Now, why not just go straight to the point, walk up to her on that first day, and ask her to marry me? Well, that wouldn't be good judgment, would it? Why? Well, because who you marry really matters. That's a very important decision. It's really helpful to marry someone that you know more about than they really look nice. You want to marry someone that you can trust, not just now, but there's a good chance you guys, the two of you, could trust each other until death. That's what marriage is intended to be. And that requires good judgment. Now, good judgment occurs when we weigh the evidence and form an accurate opinion about something or someone. That's what it means to have good judgment. 
If you're a parent raising kids, you want to raise kids that have, a good ju- have, have sound judgment. I mean, the first thing you begin to teach them is don't talk to strangers. I mean, that, that's a good judgment. Now, they have to add more contacts and more nuance to that as they get older. They, you don't want them moving you know, into adulthood, running away from everyone they don't know. But at the beginning, they need to understand, you need to exercise some good judgment. Not everybody is as friendly as your family and as safe as your family. So good judgment is dependent on good information. Now, it took me about two seconds to see how cute my wife was, my future wife was. But it took us both about two and a half years to get an idea of each other's character. You see, the more important the decision is, the more critical it is to have good judgment. If you decide, you know, what to eat later today for lunch and you exercise poor judgment, you might feel bad this afternoon. You might wish you hadn't eaten what you had decided to eat. But you know what? That's okay, because what's, what's, what's coming around the corner? Dinner. Right? And then breakfast. And then a whole nother lunch. So you got a lot of these decisions. So it, it's good over time to exercise good judgment on what you eat. But if you make a bad decision for lunch, okay, that's not good. But you can recover from that. It's a lot harder to recover from a bad marriage decision or a bad business decision or a bad friendship decision. Those can really have a big impact. So we need to grow in the good kind of judgment. We need to learn how to make better decisions and understand more deeply the complexity of the world that we live in and the nature of people and their behaviors and learn how to read situations. That's all a part of good judgment. But the challenge of good judgment is this. We can't see everything, right? We're limited beings. We can't possibly know all of the facts. And even if we can see all of the facts right now and we get all of the relevant facts and we make a decision about someone, what's true about people? They change. This may be true of them right now, but they, they, there's a good chance they're going to change, either for good or for bad. People can go both directions. This is why the good kind of judgment, and this is the rest of the fill in the blank, good judgment is written in pencil is one of the key images that it's important for us to understand. If you're exercising good judgment, you're writing your judgment statements in pencil. Good judgment is always written in pencil. What I mean by that is you're forming conclusions, but there's always this sense that I might need to get my eraser out and change this conclusion, either because new data comes to light or because this person used to be like this, but now they're like this, either for good or for bad. So good judgment always says, this is, this is what it seems like. This is what I see now, but I could be wrong. There's always that pencil. There's always that the eraser's on the end getting ready to change because, well, based on the facts that I know and based on the evidence of what this person has shown me over time, this is the conclusion I make. And we need to make those conclusions. That's fine. But they need to be written in pencil. If there's new data that comes to light, or if the person changes, I'll get out my eraser, and I'll come to a different conclusion. I could be right now, but I may not be right tomorrow on this same topic, because people can change, and the facts can come in, and we may need to get our eraser out. That's good judgment. Bad judgment is written in ink. 
This is the main difference. Bad judgment is written in ink. Now, this is the kind of judging that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7. And this use of the word judge comes primarily from the courtroom environment, not the decision-making environment. The decision-making environment, that requires good judgment. This kind of judgment is a courtroom kind of judgment. Now, the purpose of a trial in court is, is what? To determine the guilt or the innocence of the accused. And it involves a lot of complexity. It's not just one person, not just the judge. There's the whole justice system, the gathering of evidence and the assembling of juries and the, the defense attorneys on both sides deciding which evidence can be included and which needs to be excluded. I mean, there's all kinds of processes that go through. And at the end of the trial, a verdict is read that represents the conclusion of the court, and it's a final judgment on this matter. Now, for our protection, God has given the state the right and the responsibility to exercise this kind of judgment. If the state didn't have this kind of power, all kinds of crimes would just ruin a country. You can look around the world. You can see places where criminals get away with stuff and the economy is not good and people's lives are really tough. So God for our protection, gave the state the right and responsibility to do this. And it's important. You know, just this past, I think it was February, I was summoned for jury duty. And we were pulled into a, the court, and the judge told us th that uh, we were considered to sit on the jury for a trial of a man who was accused of murdering five women. I've been in jury duty before, but I, I've never been anything like that. I did not get on that jury if I did, you wouldn't have seen me for several months. I mean, it, it, was, it was a long trial. But I read in the paper just a few weeks ago that this individual had been found guilty. And it's now in the penalty phase. Now, the finality of the verdict that was rendered on that trial will protect the public. It's important that that be written in ink. Not just, hey, we'll throw him in jail until he convinces enough people that he's, he's changed and then we'll let him out. No, it, that's good for that, that verdict to stand. The problem is this when it comes to bad judgment. The problem occurs whenever we do this thing personally. Whenever we conduct a trial in our minds and we come to a final conclusion about somebody, not, not just a good judgment conclusion, but a final conclusion, and we write them off. Now, we may be right about the conclusion we've arrived at about them, and it may actually be right to put up some kind of walls of protection between us and them. But what we do not have the right to do is to issue a final judgment, a final and ink-based conclusion on anyone. We don't have the right personally to do that. State does when it comes to matters of crime, not matters of eternity, of course, but we don't have the right to do that personally. Why? Because this life isn't over yet. They're, they're still alive. Conclusions about people are made at the end by God, not now by us. So what that means is there's still hope, even for this guy sitting in jail. Judgment is final. It offers no future hope. It's a conclusion, not an observation. There's a big difference. See, an observation is here's... What I see now, that's written in pencil, could change. A judgment is, 
This is who you are in ink. Sometimes we get into arguments where we use ink rather than pencil. This can happen in marriage, a lot of arguments, but it happens a lot in marriage. You know, we get in an argument and rather than making an observation that's valid, like, it seems to me like this is what's going on, or when you said this, this is how it impacted me, and this is what I think you did, that's completely appropriate. But what do we do when we get in arguments and we get really upset? You always do this. This is who you are, basically, is what we're saying. And when we use ink words, we basically are saying, there's no hope for you. You're never going to change. Now, it may be an accurate statement about what's going on now, but to say that's the way it's always going to be, we don't have the right to use ink on those matters. Here's what we read in 1 Corinthians 4, 5 about this kind of judging. It says, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes, till Jesus comes to wrap up history or we die and stand before him. He, at that point, he will bring to light what's hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. You see, there's a couple of problems when we get on our pens of judgment and we use them to come to conclusions about people that cannot be changed in our minds. Two problems when we use ink in our judgments. One is we don't have all of the evidence. I mean, we may be amazed at someone, and, but there was all kinds of stuff that was done hidden in darkness that we don't know about that would completely change our mind if we knew. The same thing is for good. Maybe there's all kinds of good that's been done that we don't know about. We can't see all the evidence, especially what we cannot see are the motives of the heart, the why behind what we do. You know, what we do is very important. What we say is very important. But why we do it, that's a very big deal to God. Are we doing this out of love for God and love for this person, or is it really, do we have a selfish agenda? There's something in it for us. What, what's our motive? That's, a, that's very important to God. And it's really hard for us to even see our own motives. Before I get up here on stage, one of the things that I regularly pray is, God, I know people are going to be looking at me, but I I want them at the end to be looking more towards God than me. I don't want to do this for my own arrogance. But that's a motive issue that i got to struggle with. None of you can see that. I can't see your motives. So it's impossible to really see all of what's true about another person. What that means is that we are often very impressed with people that God is not impressed with. The reverse is also true. We are often very unimpressed with people that God's very impressed with. We just can't see all the evidence. That's why we we don't get a pen. We get a pencil. The second problem with using ink and judgments is we aren't the final judge. As it says in this verse, at that time, each will receive their praise from who? Us? Nah. From God. We're all going to stand before God, not each other. So what that means is it really doesn't matter what you think of me. Now, I'd like you to like me, just like you'd probably like me to like you. But it doesn't really matter what you think of me or I think of you or anyone thinks of you. 
we're not going to stand before anyone else. We're not going to come before God and say, hey, my last, the last polling on me was pretty strong. That doesn't matter. And if we judge other people with ink, if we form these shake-the-head conclusions about people, it's easy to forget who holds the pen. God holds the pen, not us. It's easy to forget that we're going to stand before him, no one else. You know, sometimes when, when people judge us this way, either these words or at least this emotion rises in our heart, and the question is, who are you to judge me, right? Isn't that the thought you feel, like when someone starts judging you? What gives you the right to judge me? And you know what? We're exactly right. We are right to ask that question. They don't have the right to do that. So how do you know if you're writing your judgments of people in pencil or in ink? How do you know? Well, don't trust your own thought on that. Because beyond these two definitions of the word judge, there comes an attitude with each and an approach with each. So we're going to look at now the attitude. There's a pencil and an ink attitude towards people and a pencil and an ink approach towards people that go along with these definitions. And Jesus goes on to talk about these. So let's turn our attention now to the attitudes. That's the definition. Now, what are the two attitudes? An attitude is basically how we look at people from the heart. Jesus describes the ink look this way. He uses a an image. This is what he says in the next several verses in Matthew 7. This is verses 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, this is a very well-known um, metaphor that Jesus used, image that he uses to describe this. But I want to use this to further explain this ink and pencil idea of judgment. So what he's describing is the ink approach. Here's what, here's what the ink uh, attitude rather is. The ink attitude is, I'm better than you. So what's the look? The look is down, right? I'm, I'm looking down at a person. That's what Jesus is describing here. Now, in a courtroom, where does the judge sit? Highest place in the court, right? In front of the court, here's a picture of a judge, higher than everybody else, rendering his or her judgments. Why? It's not just so we can get a good view. I'm sure that helps. But what it does is it represents visually and spatially the authority of the court. Now, whenever we do this to other people, whenever we elevate ourselves and we look down on them, how do they respond when they pick up that attitude? Well, they judge back, right? This is what Jesus describes right after the hashtag version of do not judge, Matthew 7, 1 through 2, a couple verses before that, do not judge. Well, what's going to happen? You're going to be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Now, this is what happens. Every time someone judges us, every time someone elevates themselves and looks down on us, 
Well, what do we want? We want to tear them down. What's the quickest way to tear them down? Elevate ourselves and judge them about something. Now, we know that they may have the right to use pencil to evaluate us, especially if they're in a position of authority of us, you know, in a company. I mean, if it's our boss, well, it makes complete sense for someone to write in pencil, hey, your performance on this project was inadequate and here's what you need to improve. We, we understand. That's, that's completely appropriate. But we also understand that nobody has the right to pull out the pen and write us off as being less than them. We react to that kind of attitude. And that's because the lowest person on the company organizational chart has the same real basic problem that the CEO of the company has. Both have a sin problem. Both are sinners. And you could also say someone sitting in prison right now has the same basic problem that I do standing before you as the pastor of this church right now. We're both, we both got a sin problem. Both of us are sinners. Now, you may be thinking, but isn't there a really big difference between me as the pastor of this church and someone sitting in prison? Yeah, there's a big difference. But I want you to understand this. It's not as big of a difference as we'd like to think it is. It, in other words, it's not big enough to give me the right to look down on anyone. Evaluate what's true of them right now, decide how they need to be addressed and related to, yes, completely appropriate. Come to the conclusion that I'm better than or you're better than, oh, no. We have no right to get out the pen and do that. Why? It's because we've all got the same basic problem, and that is sin. What we focus on is the number and the nature of, of our sin compared to the number and the nature of somebody else's sin. And that's valid, but you have to understand that's a secondary matter. The primary matter is we're all dealing with sin. So all this time we spend trying to elevate ourselves saying, hey, I got a hundred less sins than you is a secondary matter. What we do is we measure problems by their apparent size more than by the kind of problem that we're dealing with. And we do this with sin. This is part of what Jesus is talking about here. Let me ask you, to use the analogy that Jesus used, which is worse, having a plank in your eye or having a piece of sawdust in your eye? Plank, right? I mean, Jesus is using exaggeration here, so I don't think that's even possible. But if you could get a plank in your eye, that would be a bigger problem than having a piece of sawdust in your eye. But understand this, the effect of both is the exact same. And the solution for both is the exact same. In both cases, you've got wood in your eye, right? You've got a problem. Now, let's just imagine, if you have a speck of sawdust in your eye, what are you going to do? Are you going to say, you know what, it's not big enough yet, I'm going to wait till it gets to be plank size, then I'm going to address this speck of sawdust in my eye. No, you, we stop and we, you know, flush the eye out. We, we got to get that speck out. We've got to deal with the problem. Can't go on and with either a plank or a speck until you stop and until you remove both. And it's the exact same with sin. So which is worse, one sin or a hundred sins? Oh, definitely a hundred sins. But the effect of both is the same. 
Both cause blindness. And the solution for both is the same. You got to get that out. That problem's got to be removed. It's got to be dealt with. So we spend all this time looking at planks, forgetting that, look, we got the, yes, that is a worse problem, but it's basically the same kind of problem that I got. I just got a smaller problem, but I'm still blind by it, and I've still got to get rid of it just like you do. And here's the other problem when we evaluate problems and sin by the size, not the nature of them or the kind of them, is we're really not the best evaluators of the size of our own sin anyways. I mean, the fact of the matter is if you get something in your eye, you're the last person to see it accurately. You can feel it pretty accurately, but to really see it, well, you're blind. And it's the same with sin. It's entirely possible for us to think that we've got a sawdust-sized sin problem, but everyone who lives with you and everyone who knows with you is like, oh, no, it's a plank. It's not a speck. They can all see the plank sticking out of your eye. I mean, it may seem like a speck to us because, well, we've gotten used to it. But it feels like a plank to other people. So the ink attitude is, I'm better than you, and it's completely off base. So what's the pencil attitude? Pencil attitude is, I'm similar to you. Now, I'm not exactly like you. I'm not in jail for good reason. But that we have more in common than I would like to think, and that you might like to think. So the look is not down. The look is eye to eye. Well, how do we lower ourselves? We spend so much time comparing ourselves and being competitive and trying to think that we're better because we did a few more things that we think are better than this person. So how do, how do we get back off of our elevated position and look at people eye to eye? Well, Jesus says, you got to look at your own sin first. You got to start with what you think is a speck in your eye. You got to start there. And only then, he says, will you see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What this is saying is, if you've dealt with your own sin problem honestly, and by the way, that's not just a three-month project, that's a lifelong project. If you have dealt with your own sin honestly and you continue to wake up each morning and work to understand the nature of your sin, especially on a motive level, well, then the last thing you're going to be is arrogant. The last thing you're going to have any right to do is look down on anybody. You will begin to see people eye to eye, not down. And that will allow you to begin to approach people as a friend and not a judge. Only then will you be able to help them because only then will they be open to your help. Only then will you see clearly enough to really be of help to them. So let me give you a project on this that I found to be helpful for myself when I do it before we move on to the two approaches. Whenever you find yourself shaking your head at someone, um, you may not be doing it physically, but on the inside you're just like, what is wrong with that person? Whenever you find yourself doing that, it may be someone on the news, it may be someone that you work with, it may be someone in your family, and you just find yourself just shaking your head thinking, what's wrong with that? I want you to stop. And imagine how that could be you. 
Now, I know it's not, but just imagine. And this is what helps me is when I try to imagine, what I realize is people just didn't suddenly become who they are. If someone's treating me like a jerk, they didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, today's going to be jerk day. I'm going to treat everyone like a jerk today. No, they, they walked a long path to become that kind of person. And as I began to imagine what path it might be, I may be wrong, but what path might lead a person to become like this or to treat people like that or have said this or done that? What I realize is there's not a single path that I haven't traveled on myself. Now, I maybe didn't go as far as they did to do what they did, but I've walked down that blind alley long enough to know, man, without help, I might have I continued, and I might be exactly where they are. It's important for us to understand that every path that has caused someone to arrive where they're at, they have chosen yes. But the main difference is we just maybe haven't walked quite as far, but we know that path. We know the power of that path. We know the gravity of that path. We know the stones and the roots that trip us up in that path because we've walked that path. So we should be grateful that we haven't gone that far rather than shaking our heads and saying, what's wrong? We know what's wrong with them. They just went a little farther than we did. Those are the two attitudes. Now the two approaches. The attitude is the look, how we look at people at a heart level. The approach is the resulting action. This is the movement now that we um, do when we move towards people in this way. So first of all, the ink approach. The ink approach is this. Bad judgment, the ink approach is this. I can change that. The false belief is that I can write a new chapter in someone's life. That what I actually have in my hand is a pen that has power to just write words out and people say, I'll do that. When all we really have is a pencil. And they got a big old eraser. I won't do that. So this is what Jesus says in the next verse in Matthew 7, 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Another image. What is he talking about here? What's sacred? The most sacred thing that, that we know of is, is God's words. Pages of Scripture. So you take something sacred. You take pearls of what? Wisdom. You don't give them to dogs or pigs. Why? They don't recognize their value. See, we think our words are like ink. We really think that if we could just say the right thing, people, light bulbs would go on and people just, oh my goodness, you're right. I'll stop doing that. I'll, I'll stop being like that. And so we say these words and we think people must be writing these down on the inside. I mean, I don't see them taking notes, but they must be hanging on these words because, I mean, this is, this, is some, this is some pearls of wisdom right here. And we think that they leave a conversation and they must spend the next three hours thinking, now, how can I implement those, those pearls of wisdom that I just heard from my friend or my spouse? Turns out, not so much. But what happens is if people don't act on what we say, so what do we do? It's like, well, they, we just need to say it again, right? Because <laughs> it's so good. 
Or maybe we need to say it louder. Or maybe we need to add more explanation. And, well, this is an argument now. You know what an argument is? It's two people with pencils pushing really hard, thinking that if they push harder, the lead will somehow become ink. If I just say it louder, if I just say it more, if I, what I'm saying to this person will suddenly be ink type and will change them. But pushing a pencil really hard just breaks the pencil. It doesn't turn the lead on the page suddenly into ink. It doesn't become permanent. It doesn't have that power. See, the truth is that what we say most often has the same effect that sacred things have on dogs and pearls have on pigs. I mean, what we say may be right and valuable, but if they don't want to change, it doesn't matter how valuable it is. I mean, why would you not give a dog a Bible? You know, if you own a dog, if you, you know, why not give them a copy of the Bible? What are they going to do to it? They're going to tear it apart. Is it because the Bible's not valuable? No. The Bible's the most valuable thing we have. The dog just doesn't know that. Why not give a pig a pearl? Pigs don't want pearls. They want slop. They want food. They don't want pearls. Now, the pigs don't understand. I could buy a whole lot of slop with that one pearl. They don't, they don't know that. So they... That's not what they're hungry for. What Jesus is saying is our hearts are the same way. We have appetites. And until the heart is hungry for a particular piece of truth, it doesn't want it. And there's nothing that you can do or I can do to create hunger in someone else's heart. We can't force truth. As a matter of fact, what happens is if you try to force truth on people, what happens? They, they get mad just like a pig who was hoping for some slop and got, what are these shiny things? You know, they trample on the pearl, and then they come after you. Where's my slop? They'll turn on you. you. You have just become an irritating presence in their life. Whatever pearl of wisdom you may have, whatever value it has, it gets trampled on. You see, there's simply no getting around the fact that God intends the human heart to be free to decide for itself whether or not to bow the knee to God. You know, this is really what stands behind so much of the fighting and conflict in relationships. We keep trying to get people to ingest truth that they don't want. And the heart is just resistant to being force-fed the truth. And what that does is that makes unwanted instruction very dangerous. So if the heart doesn't want it, it really doesn't matter how important or valuable the truth is. So what are we supposed to do then? These people around us, they need to change. Are we just supposed to do nothing? No. We are to set down our pen and get out our pencil. So what's the pencil approach? The pencil approach is only God can change them. That doesn't mean there's nothing for us to do. That means there's nothing direct for us to do. Matthew 7, 7, the very next verse, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened. You oftentimes this verse is read just all by itself, but it's in the context of this do not judge section. Jesus goes on to talk about the power of prayer and asking God. 
So the way this is described by Jesus is you first use your pencil words in prayer to God. You ask God. But it also implies then after that, you can ask them. You see, our role in change is a simple request. First of God, and then maybe if they're open, of them. And it goes this way, God, please change me first. And it spends most of its time on that. And then, God, please change them. God's the one who brings about change. And so we do well to start by first asking, asking him for insight and help. And then after a period of time, it may be appropriate to ask them to consider what you have to say. You see, often by the time that we say anything to someone, we're so upset about the issue that we're making demands. We're not asking God. We're not asking them. We're demanding. And Jesus says you also need to seek. You need to seek to understand yourself from God's point of view and then seek to understand them from God's point of view. We don't have all the facts. God does. We don't. Ask God for insight, first into you and then into them. Then you might be able to approach them with your pencil words and say, now, I could be wrong, but I think this is something that I see that's going on. Can we talk about this? That's a whole different approach than you always... And then knock. Knock first before you have a conversation. Why do we knock on doors? Because people have a right to privacy, right? Same thing is true with us on the inside. We have the right to some privacy. So you need to ask for permission before you give input. Don't just go barging into their private life and saying, hey, you're messed up. You need to change. No, you start by knocking. Hey, can we talk about this? No. All right. Now, who has control in each of these three actions? The asker? No. The seeker? No. The knocker? No. God has control. So we start by doing business with God ourselves, and then we use our pencil words to appeal to God, the only one who writes in ink, the only one who has a pen. Then we're in a position to approach others, not as a judge with a verdict written in ink, but a friend with a thought written in pencil, offering to help if it would be helpful. So, do not judge. Don't judge. Well, it depends, doesn't it? If you have an important decision to make, well, you take as much time as you can to render a good judgment. But if you're ready to give someone a piece of your mind, whoa, slow down. Hold on. Hold on to those great pearls of wisdom that you've been crafting for some time now. First, go to work on the plank in your own eye. Focus on your need to change more than on their need to change. Then ask God for insight into yourself and then them. Seek to really understand them, not just what they're doing wrong, not just how they're irritating you, but what's really going on. And then, maybe, lightly tap on the door to see if they might be open to a conversation. If they're not, 
That's okay. Don't keep pounding on that the door. Keep praying. Wait till that door cracks open just a little bit. Let's pray. Father, you have um, you've given us a pencil to write our assessments with, not a pen. And we admit that we often arrogantly think that what we have is a pen. But I pray that you would help us to, to approach people with the attitude that we need to make good judgments, but we don't know everything. I pray you give us insight into ourselves, and out of that, that we would develop a real heart for people. And we recognize that in our culture, like in most cultures, there's a lot of time spent by us, just shaking our heads at the people around us, looking down in arrogance. But from the perspective of heaven, there's just not that much difference between us and everybody else. I pray particularly for those that we may be struggling with. God, I pray you give us good judgment. Maybe there's some boundaries we need to put up for a while. But, oh God, keep us from pulling out the pens that we don't have and coming to final conclusions about people. Pray you'd open up our eyes to ourselves and to those around us so that we might ask and seek and knock. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.